So we're beginning this series called 40 Days in the Word. And so uh, we're going to be walking through, and everything, our focus is really going to be on God's Word. It's on the Bible. It's funny how the more we get familiar with something, the more we seem to set it to the side, and it finds less significance in our life rather than more. And this is the trap we fall into often as believers. The Bible, which is very familiar to us, or to some sections of it are, or the preacher shares from it every week, and we get to the point where we think, it's a little less significant, or I don't need to pick it up for myself. And before we know it, if we're not careful, we find that we don't really know the Bible at all. And so we decide, let's just restart. Let's just re-kick it off. And over this series, we're going to crank into the Bible. So if you're one today that you're in the Bible every day, great. If you're one where you're like, you can't even remember the last day you opened the Bible up for yourself, that's okay too. Today's your starting point, and we're going to go from here. But our goal is that every single one of us would get into the Bible. And one of the, the small practical things I want to invite you to do is that you would bring your Bible with you, that you'd bring it along, that during this 40 days that we would get in the habit of seeing this Bible as something that is as significant, more significant, maybe than those things we wouldn't leave house with, our, our house with, such as our cell phones or, or those type of things but that we would make sure we, we have God's word and we walk through it. So now I realize that as we're walking through today, you couldn't possibly flip fast enough to keep up with all the verses that we're going to be walking through today. That's okay. That's okay. But nonetheless, the discipline of getting in the habit that, that the Bible isn't somewhere, but we know and we use it. All right. Make sense? Good. Well, let's get into it. If this morning you'll need our sermon notes, so that if you happen to pop in here and you didn't get those, just slip up your hand and Richard will run you one. He's in the back there. Um, don't feel bad for slipping up your hand because, you know, my wife's down here with her hand up. So, you know, you don't need to feel bad. So, yeah, and he'll get those to you. Just hold those up. So we're going to look at this uh, 40 days in the Word. We're going to look at God's Word the whole time. All right? The Bible, you may have known this, the Bible is the most read book in history. It's the most sold book in history. It is the most translated book in history. These are far surpassed any other book. But the question is, why is it God's word? I mean, how do we know really that it's God's word, right? I mean, we know the Bible says that. Second Timothy chapter 3, it says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking. We don't always like that. Correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to look at that verse again next week, but for now, I want you to look at that phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. You can even circle that word God-breathed if you need to, to, to make sure you put some emphasis on it. That word right there, if it's split up, it means God and breathe, right? Two different words together here. And the Bible is saying that this is indeed every letter, every word is God breathes. It came from him. What does this mean? Some of the translations translate the Bible as inspired, but we're not talking about an inspiring writer who is writing a book that's very inspiring. We're talking about a God-inspired book, and we're talking about something that came straight from God from his breath. And the Bible says that God's word is God's very breath. It's not just a good idea, but it's, it's God's word to us. And that's why a verse like in Psalm 119, verse 86, it can say, all of your commands can be trusted. That's a very important verse. Because if all of his commands are there and all of his ways are there and they can't be trusted, then of what value would the Bible be? It's one thing for the Bible to claim that it's the word of God, and it's one thing for the Bible to say it can be trusted. But how do we know, really? 
How do we really know that this book can be trusted? Now, that's an important and that's a legitimate and it's a valid question for us to ask. And so that's what we'll do this morning. How do I know I can trust the Bible? Number one, it's historically accurate. For that reason, I know I can trust the Bible because it's historically accurate. That means, in other words, it's not just doctrinally accurate. It's not just theologically accurate. No, it's accurate regarding history. Not just morals and ethics. It matches up with true history. I mean, this is real people, real places, real times, real locations here. It's true historically. So why is that so important? Remember, the Bible tells us that God cannot lie tells us this in Hebrews chapter 18 or chapter 6 verse 18 it is impossible for God to lie because God is truth really the only reason this this universe works and functions with the order is because God created it to function that way he designed it to function that way and those things that he designed they're true all the time that's how God is and it's how he functions i mean you can, you can imagine for instance if like the law of gravity only worked on tuesday and thursdays and not the rest of the week that would be that would be kind of weird. Um, have you ever, like, gone boating and you forgot to tie the, the boat up to the dock? Uh, that would be like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That would be like everything in your life, floating away without gravity. Uh, I know for me, I would go into the rope or the bungee cord business because uh, that would be a cash cow if gravity didn't work. No, these laws of physics, they're true. God thought them up. He created these, and so they are true all the time. Psalm 34, or 33, 4 says it this way, The word of the Lord is right and true. It's not only right and true regarding salvation, it's right and true regarding history as well. So how do we know really that the Bible is historically accurate? Well, really, we test it by the same way that we would test any history and any history to be accurate, right? Um, we just go to the good test of history. You know, for instance, one of the ways that we can know that the Bible is good history is that it came from eyewitnesses. That so many of the people that wrote in the Bible, that actually wrote the books that make up the Bible, were eyewitnesses account to Jesus or to, to something that happened in the Bible. Moses was there when the Red Sea split. Joshua was there, was there when the Jericho wall fell. The disciples of Jesus, they sat in the upper room and they saw the resurrected Jesus and they went and wrote about it. And we get to read about it. And Matthew was there and he wrote it down. John was there, he wrote it down. Now Peter was there and he found a scribe named uh, John Mark and Mark wrote it down in his gospel as well. Uh, Luke even went out and interviewed, we're told in the Bible, he interviewed eyewitnesses to write the book of Luke. The other test of history that we know can, the Bible can be accurate is really the care that was taken in how the Bible was copied. Have you ever heard maybe somebody say something like, you know, I'm sure it was right when it was first written, but, uh, you know, it's been copied so many times and people have kind of added in their own thing. And so it's really not what it originally was uh, when it was originally written. written. Yeah, have you ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you've thought it yourself. Well, here's what you can tell that person if, if they were to say that to you. You can say, you don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> that's, that's not how it functions. It's not how it worked. It's amazing to find how accurate the Bible is when we find out how it was copied. The Old Testament copyists, I mean, they worked like a Xerox machine, copying everything exact. And they weren't called to, to write stuff word by word. They were, it was dictated to them to write it letter by letter all the way through. And so they had this long list of rules they had to go by. 
in order to make sure it was exact. One of the rules is, is like this. When, when they had a, a roll, it had to be a specific number of columns down a scroll. Specific number. Couldn't be more, couldn't be less. It had to be 30 characters wide, and that's it. If one line was off, then they had to throw that away and start all over. They were so exact that they knew the middle letter of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the middle letter. They, were, they also knew the middle letter of the whole Old Testament. And they copied all of this, and when they were done, they would go to that middle letter, and they would start counting forward, and they would start counting backwards. And if it didn't come out to the specified number, then they would have to throw it away and start all over again. It's rules like this that were in place to make sure these things were exact. You know, there's lots of ways that we can know how it was exact, but one of the biggest areas is in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you didn't really know what those were all about. Well, here's what they're all about. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written 100 years before the time of Jesus, 100 years before Jesus. And they contain portions of all of the Old Testament books, except for the book of Esther. All of the other Old Testament books are in there. And so when they found these, before they found them, the earliest copies of the scripture they had were dated to about 900 years after Jesus. So you get it here? There's a thousand year gap. And so now they're able to look and, and decide, well, what, what does it look like in those thousand years? What did it happen at the beginning and what did it happen at the end? And how did these line up? You wonder what they found? They found a difference of about less than 5%. And almost that, that 5% was almost entirely the misspelling of words or the misspelling of names. Over a thousand years, these copyists, these copyists, they proved out that their method kept the scripture exact. It kept the words intact again and again. So there's proof there. And there's also proof in, in the archaeology side of things. Now, I certainly wouldn't boast that this is my area of expertise, but let me share with you a little bit this morning. When you look at archaeology, it proves again and again that the places and the people of God's word, they're true and they're real. They existed. It's not just fiction. You know, you can go to many of these places. They've been dug up. The Areopagus that we read about in the book of Acts, you can go there and you can see it described just like it's described in Scripture. The theater in Athens where this riot took place, uh, it's there. They've dug it up. You can go visit this. You know, Herod's temple, the pools of Siloam, where that blind man was healed, if you remember that Scripture in John chapter 5, you can go to these places and you can see them like the Scripture described them. All of these places that we've talked about here and many more, they've been dug up. They're there and you can visit them. For a long time, historians thought they, uh, they weren't sure if this guy named Solomon, Solomon ever really existed, the guy that was talked about in the Bible in the Old Testament. They are certainly sure that he didn't have any horses, like the Bible says, because they only had camels back then. Well, that was until they, they dug up Megado, and they discovered one of Solomon's chariot cities, and it had thousands of stables for horses. Thousands of stables for horses. So the Bible proved out right here. One of the greatest areas that we find here in archaeology is this empire known as the Hittites. There's this whole empire known as the Hittites, and it's only spoken about in God's Word. It's not written about anywhere else. So for, for, for many, many years, historians thought, well, this wasn't true. The Bible just made it up. But that was until the early 1900s. A professor by the name of Hugo Winkler, he discovered thousands of clay tablets with inscriptions to the capital of the Hittites. Well, now everyone believes in the Hittites. No one denies it now. So the Bible is historically accurate. 
we could go on and on. There are people that are much smarter than I could share even more with you. The Bible is also scientifically accurate. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding to this one because we think that that the Bible and science don't match up. But that's not true. The Bible doesn't contradict science. The Bible defines science. Because of the truth of God, it's always set up the laws of science, and God made sure that his word would not conflict these laws of science. The Bible obviously is not given as a historical textbook. And if you were building a rocket ship, you probably would not go to the Bible for uh, a map of how to do it. Um, As parents, uh, we do pray when we have to build those little science projects with our kids, like the volcano, and uh, those take a lot of prayer because those take the grace of God to put those things together. Well, the Bible doesn't use that scientific language and stuff, but the Bible never gives bad science. It's always actually ahead of science. Now, there's things in the Bible, and the Bible says they were true, that we've discovered 100 years or 200 years ago that were discovered long after, but the Bible wrote about them. One thing about God's truth is it never changes, but science constantly changes. God understands stuff even when we don't, and his rules, they don't change. Listen to how it says in Psalm 148. Let every created thing, that's the whole universe, give praise to God, for he issued his command. He set these rules in motion. And they came into being. He established them forever and ever, and his orders will never be revoked. You know, the law of gravity, it it doesn't work today and not work tomorrow. It works always because that's how God has designed it, and that's how God has set it all up. So truth doesn't change. Do you know for thousands and thousands of years, uh, everyone believed the world was flat? You remember reading about this in elementary school, right? They believed it was, it was flat. I mean, it wasn't until Copernicus and Galileo and Columbus came around that they actually started to think, well, maybe this is, maybe it's not flat. Maybe there's, maybe it's round here. And then they actually had to have that proof to them just to be sure. And they said, oh, wow, yeah, it's a sphere. It's a ball. It's not flat, right? So you would expect the Bible to say that the earth is flat because in its existence during those thousands of years, everyone thought it was flat. But that's not what the Bible says at all. It says the exact opposite. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 40. It says, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. You know, for years it was accepted science that there was only about a thousand stars in the universe. Did you know this? I didn't even, I didn't know any of this. So, but I learned this this week. That all the stars in the universe, they could be counted. And so uh, the number was kind of finite. In fact, for uh, 150 years, a, a, a man named Hipparchus, he counted them, and he wrote a very famous dissertation. And you know how many stars that he came up with? 1,022. That was the number, because he had counted them. And so that was the number for a number of years. That's what people believed about stars. And then this guy, Ptolemy, came along, and he said, well, that guy's crazy. He's whacked out. I've counted 1,026 stars. He found four more stars. And so for a long period of time, that's what was believed, 1,026 stars. But, you know, I read an article this week, and you've read many things that are similar to this, of a guy that says, once again, the number of the stars in the universe is infinite. That's what we believe today, right? But what does the Bible say about it? All the way back, I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. And the, num- and the, the scripture says in Jeremiah 33, the number of stars are infinite. We find that all the way back long time ago in scriptures. I, I, you know, I guess they didn't read that one. Or really anybody for that thousands of years didn't read those scriptures to know it was there. But it was there. And it was truth because truth is always truth. 
For many years, did you know that people believed too much blood in your body made you sick? And so if you were sick or if something was wrong with them, they would actually bleed you out to get rid of the blood. Now we know the exact opposite. Blood is given when we're sick. Blood's given. We understand blood to be a life source now, and clean blood is important or or we can't be healthy. What does the Bible say about it? Well, way back in the book of Leviticus, I mean, this is in the first five books of the Bible, the life of every creature is in its blood. And we understand from God's word way back the same principle that we've discovered over the years on our own. How did Moses know this? Well, God told him, and he wrote this down for us and for our benefit. In fact, Proverbs says in in Proverbs chapter 30, every word of God is flawless. Flawless. I mean, that's that's a pretty strong language there. It's an Olympic year, and we'll watch quite a bit of Olympic athletes, and at the end of many of the events, they'll hold up a score. And only that perfect 10 or whatever the scoring system might be in that sport tells us that that was flawless. How often do we see that? Not often. But the word is told to us here that God's word is flawless. Psalms 12, 6 goes even further. It says the word of God are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. So we learned the Bible is historically accurate, it's scientifically accurate, but you know, it's also prophetically accurate. What does that mean? It means the predictions that are found in God's word, they hold true. The Bible is literally filled with thousands and thousands of prophecies from God. I mean, prophecies about what's going to happen at such and such a time or in such and such a location or how it will happen. Over the centuries, thousands of those prophecies have come true, and there's many more that are yet to be fulfilled. Do you know that there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ? I mean, these are prophecies that happened years leading up to the time of Christ. And these are things that said when he'll be born or where he'll be born, how he'll be born, the circumstances that were going on in the world when he was being born. These are not things you can make up and call yourself the Messiah on these type of things. You can't control where you're born and what the political state is when you're born. But all these were part of the prophecies. Do you know what the odds of 300 prophecies coming true in this period of time? I mean, the number is so crazy that we, we can't even actually write down the number. It's so large, the odds of this type of thing happening. In fact, it takes amazing faith to just believe it was all random. It's amazing faith to believe that Jesus somehow faked and made all those 300 predictions come true about himself. In fact, it, it just takes a more enormous faith, much, much more faith than to believe in Jesus as the Son of God than to believe in all those coincidences. Here's what the Bible says in, in Peter, 2 Peter. It says, No prophecy ever originated from humans. This means that it wasn't a bunch of guys sitting around just thinking stuff up that might happen later. They didn't have a hunch and decide, Well, I'm going to write that down because I got a pretty good hunch. I think it'll, it'll happen. No, instead it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. God is the author of of these prophecies is what the Bible is telling us here. You know, during the Bible times, nobody wanted to be a prophet. Nobody wanted to be a prophet. Why? Because in order to be a prophet of God, you had to be correct 100% of the time. 100% of the time. I walk up and down my stairs every day, and 100% of the time, I don't walk up and down them well. Sometimes I stumble a little bit, even on my own stairs. Nobody wanted to be a prophet because they had to be correct 100%. Guess what happened if they weren't correct? They were up for death. 
They could be put to death for being wrong even once because they were deemed a false prophet. And we've got lots of people out there today that, that are prophets, or at least they, they try to speak prophetically. There's prophets all over the place. There's false prophets all over the place. There's, there's non-prophets out there. It's just a little... Just a little humor to slip in there. I just want to make sure you're still tracking with me. So five or six of you laugh, so I know there's five or six of you awake. That's good. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 26. This all, all excuse me, this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophet as recorded in Scripture. I mean, this is Jesus talking here. Jesus talking about the predictions. Revelation 20, John says it this way. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy. You know, you can trust them and they're true. Why? Because they're from God. The Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must take place soon. So it's, it's prophetically accurate. The odds are just too crazy to think that it was all just coincidence here. Another reason we can know that the Bible is true is because it's thematically unified. What do I mean by that? Thematically unified, meaning from the start to finish, all the way through, the Bible carries the same theme. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we've all read books, some big fat books, right, that carry the same theme all the way through, right? But a book that was written over 1,600 years by 40 different authors, I don't think so. That kind of changes up things a little bit. To think that that many people would write over a 1,600-year period, 30 different authors or 40 different authors on three different continents, amazingly different political systems that were going on at the different times that it was written, and yet the theme holds out from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. I mean, it'd be one thing if one person wrote the book, right? And the Quran is written by Muhammad. The Analects of Confucius are written by Fucius. The writings of Buddha by Buddha. That would make sense that a theme would carry out. But this is a bit different. I mean, let's say this morning I were to take 50 pieces of paper. Now, there's 66 books of the Bible, but let's say I were to take 50 pieces of paper and hand them out to you, and I would ask you, just rip them any way you want. Whatever, whatever comes to mind, just rip that paper in that shape and that direction that you want. I'm not going to tell you why. I just want you to do it, and then I'll collect them. And if I were to collect those, what are the chances or the odds that I could put those papers together, and they would like, clearly look like a map of the United States? Not very good. Not very good. But that's how the Bible works. That God spoke to people and they wrote over a 1,600-year period. And God pulled them and they were assembled into what we know as the Bible and as a scripture. That's how the Bible all fits together. Listen to what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 4, or 24. Beginning in Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the books that are, that are said to be authored by Moses. And all the prophets, Jesus is talking about really the rest of the Old Testament here. Jesus explained to him them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Did you catch that there? That Jesus talked to him about what was said concerning himself. Most people think, well, the New Testament's about Jesus. The Old Testament, that's about Israel. That has nothing to do with Jesus. But remember, the New Testament isn't even written at this time where Jesus is, is sharing this verse here, when Jesus is speaking these words. No, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament here. He's talking about how the Old Testament scriptures, they point to him. And he's talking about how they talk about him and what is going on here with him and why he's there on the earth. The pictures, the metaphors, the analogies, the allusions, the stories, all leading and pointing to Jesus. 
In John, he says it this way, You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Remember, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying how the scriptures point. The same theme carries through that we know in the New Testament is following in the Old Testament all the way up to now. Number five, you, you can trust the Bible because we know it's confirmed by Jesus. It's confirmed by Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. Maybe you've heard somebody say or you've even thought sometime that, uh, well, I believe the words of Jesus, but I'm not so sure about those other guys. I mean, I don't really know what their motives were or what they were after. So uh, I'll believe Jesus, but I'm not sure of the, the other guys. Well, here's the problem with that. The problem is that Jesus trusted those guys. Jesus believed in what was written down. Jesus believed in the whole word, the word, uh, excuse me, the whole word that was written. And so for us, we, we have to trust in that, God, that word as well. Matthew 5.18 says this, I'll tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I mean, that's how valuable it was to Jesus. We don't find a time where Jesus says, hey, take great value in my words. Jesus never says, hey, when you print this, print it in red so you know that I wrote it. That was decided long after him by people that wanted to make it easy for us to understand those were Jesus' words. Jesus valued the whole scripture. In John 10, it says, Scripture is always true. Always true is what the Bible's saying here. Jesus proclaimed the truth of the Bible. When Jesus talks about the Bible, he's not talking about just reading it for poetry or for good literature. He believed that this was a real, powerful, life-changing book. And that's why he valued it so greatly. He says there in Luke 11, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and who obey it. Jesus is saying, look, do it, obey it, follow the word of God. Don't just read it as poetry or, or read it as a, a neat thing that's, that's well written. Read it as something that can really change and impact your life. So when Jesus talks about the Bible, he's talking about it as a real book, real people, real times, and real, a real God who really is at work in our lives. Do you know that Jesus believed in the prophets? He believed that the prophets and their predictions. Jesus believed that Daniel was real, which means Jesus actually believed somebody could be thrown in a lion's den and come out unscathed. I mean, Jesus believed in Noah, which meant, I mean, Jesus believed in the flood. He believed that story. He, he tells us about it. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve, which means Jesus confirms that Adam and Eve came into the world sinless and that they fell, they sinned. And that started all this mess. Jesus believed in the, the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to them. What does that mean? Jesus believed that God is a God of justice and that God will hold us accountable and that God does give us an opportunity to have redemption and to turn from our ways. Jesus even believed in Jonah and what happened there. We find that out in God's word. The last four weeks, we've been walking through Jonah. And that, that's a crazy book to believe in. Crazy. Yet Jesus affirms that. You know, it makes me uh, uh, kind of smile sometimes when, when people say things, when they look back, they say, you know, I'm going to trust this part of the Bible, but I'm not really going to trust that part of the Bible. Or I like what it says here, but I don't really like it, what it says here. Or this, this I can really reason out, but I can't really reason out this over here. So I'll follow this, but I won't follow that. Well, the big problem with that is Jesus trusted it all. He followed it all. He confirmed it all. And so if I'm going to confirm Jesus in my life, 
then I had to confirm the scripture as well. Here's what Augustine once said. If you believe in the Bible what you like, and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust, but yourself. It's true. If you don't know, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know about you, but you know, I found that my emotions or my opinions or sometimes what I'm going through at that time, they're not always trustworthy. In fact, my wife could tell you how many times I've had to come back to her and say, you know, I'm sorry, I, you know, I didn't really didn't have a right to say that or do that, or you know, I was a little emotional or a little upset or wasn't thinking right or all those type of phrases. You know those phrases, right? Yeah? Yeah. But God's Word can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted, and I know it because Jesus confirmed it himself. Finally, uh, as we've talked about all these things this morning, historically and scientifically, prophetically and, and thematically, and that Jesus confirmed it, but really the most significant reason why I can hold that the Bible is true is that it has transforming power. It really does. That it has transforming power. Nothing changes people's life like the Bible. Nothing changes it like the Bible. I could show you, I mean, some flat-out drunk guys that have spent and wasted years of their life sitting down at a bar stool somewhere, being removed from their families and distant, and they got a hold of this word. And then this word got a hold of them, and their life was transformed. Transformed. Or the person, the addict, who is just locked into something, whatever they may be addicted to, and locked into something, they've spent years of their life giving themselves over that, giving their money, ruining themselves and their family, and they get hold of this word, and the word gets hold of them, and it's life transformation. Or how about the deadbeat dad who has spent years not connecting with their kid, and business was the king, and they went and they did business, and their kid just grew up and right in front of them without the connection. And then they get a hold of this word and what it talks about how to be a dad. And their lives are transformed and the connection with their kids. And before you know it, you look back and those people are godly husbands and wonderful dads and incredible businessmen. That's how this Bible changes things. You know, if, if I'd have thought that you could change human behavior and you could have this type of change by passing laws, well, I would have become a politician. <laughs> but I have no faith. I have no faith that politics will bring about the greatest change to our greatest problems in our world. And I like politics. I like following it. I just don't have that type of faith. Don't have that type of faith in that. I mean, you can make all the laws in the world, but a law is not going to change the heart. It's not going to change the heart, how we function, how we care for people, how we love our families. You can make a law that outlaws racism and bigotry, and which are good laws, and they should, and probably we should go further with those laws. But no law is going to turn a bigot into a lover. It's not going to do it. Only God can do that. We only find that God brings this powerful life transformation. And so if we want to see this type of life transformation in our lives, we find it in God's Word. Now, for me, I, I've spent my life in, this, in the heart change business and I know many of you have as well and how you, how you want to share the gospel with other people. And I find that it's because of this book. It's because of something that they have latched onto. It's because of the salvation that this book teaches from the beginning to the end. Here's what Jesus says about it in John chapter 8. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
Notice how he's saying, if you continue in my word, keep going, make it part of your life, always. We don't go to the altar one day at a youth camp or at Sunday morning service like this, say yes to Jesus, and just get on our pedestal and ride it out the rest of our days. Jesus himself is saying, continue in it. Continue, know this word, build up, grow. But look at the second part of the, the verse. It says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. I don't know about you, but I want to be free. I want to I constantly live that type of free life. The most amazingly, amazing thing is that uh, a lot of secular universities around the world, they have this bottom phrase, this, you shall be free. I mean, they have it imprinted in stone on, on cornerstones some places of buildings all over the place. The truth will make you free. But the problem is we ignore the first part of the verse. We ignore God and the Bible. They forget that part. If you continue in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, it's not just for us going out and creating our own thoughts, our, our own opinions, or maybe by something, you know, we catch on Oprah. You know, um, that was just to connect with the women out there. I, I don't know anything about that show. Never, never heard of it. So I'm joking. I've watched it. Okay. Or if we read a good article and somebody's really persuasive, or we hear something on the news and we say, man, that really sounds good. The Bible says, if you continue in my word, that the word of God will do, be the thing that sets, that sets us free. Do you know, do you really believe everything that you read online? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's our, our new mode, right? Where you can print anything you want online. I mean, you read every, every blog you read, do you believe those? Or every Facebook post that pops out? Or every Twitter report that comes flowing our way, do we read it? No. So why do we spend so much of our time reading things that we know don't contain all the truth and so little time reading this book, which we know contains the truth and that it can transform and impact our life? Here's the fundamental question. This is the question we have to ask ourselves, and there's really no way of getting around this question. The question is, What's going to be the final authority in your life? What's the final authority in your life? You'll need to decide that. And my recommendation is you decide it today that you get right on it. But is it going to be God or will it be the world or yourself or something other than God? Am I going to listen to what God says as truth or do I kind of trust my own thoughts or opinion? Or when I start the phrase, well, I believe that. And it's never grounded in God's word. Who's going to be the authority in my life? Is it God or if it's me? Because when I say I can't believe that book, it's not because I can't. It's because I've chosen not to or because I don't want to accept it. And the reason I don't want to accept it as my authority in my life is because I'm pretty happy with me being the authority in my life and me being the one that says what I should do and how I should do it. I don't need a God that tells me what's moral and what's immoral, right? I want to own that for myself. Well, the question we would ask ourselves is, how has that worked for you in your life? How has it functioned? Has it solved all the problems that you were hoping it to solve? Are you stress-free and worry-free? Irritations vanished in your life? Or are you able to function well in relationships now with other people? What's your, what's your love quota now? How does that look? And how well are you able to do that when I want to be the Lord, I have to ask myself, how, how's that working for me? How's it really playing out in my everyday life? So the big question is, am I, what am I going to use as the authority of my life? It's a question we all have to answer because, listen, 
this morning. If we, if we look at that and this book is not true, then we're in a heap of trouble. You are and I am as well. Why? Because this book is what I trust for salvation. The message in this book, the truth of this book, the life-changing application in this book. I mean, this is the book that tells me that I have purpose. This is the book that offers me hope. This is the book that transforms how I function in my life. This is the book that has turned me into a better dad. This is that type of book. This is this book that has given me right relationship with God. And so if this book's not true, I'm I'm in a heap of trouble because this book is the book that shows me how to get to heaven and how to connect with God eternally. The Bible says in Romans 12, do not conform to any longer to the pattern of this world. It's, it's talking about the world's way of thinking, the world's view. It says, by, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test, you'll be able to know and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Did you know that God's will for you is good? It is. And God's will for you, it's pleasing. And his plan for your life is perfect. But you're only going to find that. You're only going to find that in the perfect word of God. And so this morning, the, the, the first question you have to ask is, can I trust?